All right. So Jen, I'm so glad to, to have you here with us today. And um, and I, I forgot to mention that you're, you're also the author of a book. So I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit about that. But in, in some of these conversations, I've saved some of the book questions toward the end. Uh-huh. Um, but you had mentioned to me that one of the books that one of our other guests, Libby Grobmeyer, had mentioned had been really influential for you, um, yeah. John Sanford. And um, the, yeah, is, I'm a bodily neighbor, so I can't go <laughs> so, so I'd love for you to talk about the influence of that book for you and kind of where that book landed for you in your, in your, in your journey and, and maybe kind of use that as a starting place to, to talk about your journey into mindfulness and then your, your connection with Christianity and that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. First, thank you for asking me to be here. And uh, one of my discomforts is speaking in front of people. So I'm like breathe, breathing through that right now. Yeah. And uh, the fall of 1990, I'd previously gone to Columbia University in New York City. And that really, like, I was a kid who kind of, for whatever reason, wanted to go explore things. And I was like, decided when I was 12 years old, I was going to live in New York City. And uh, somehow I got accepted there. <laughs> and went there and for certain reasons I, I didn't finish there I, I took what I called a sabbatical for three years <laughs> and uh, traveled around the country and did some other interesting things and I was always kind of searching I think for something and I wasn't sure what it was and at Columbia I got exposed to like sort of the history of philosophy and all these sort of deep questions that in my, I probably had carried around my whole life as a child and I ended up going to Hendricks College in in the fall of 1990 and I remember at that time I was going to double major in physics and philosophy I think I was going to like figure out the world but I felt like if I studied both of those things I could figure everything out there there was a book kind of popular that time called the Tao of Physics by man named Capra I think and I'd read that and I was like that's the answer you know to my sort of looking back I was sort of searching for myself really but I was looking for myself through sort of external studies, maybe. Anyhow, so I, I come there and I met my philosophy, my uh, the advisor who'd been assigned to me, Dr. Peg Falls Corbett. And I was kind of, I guess, laying out these sort of, I want to do physics and philosophy. And she said, you really, I want you to take this course with Dr. J. McDaniel called the Varieties of Christianity. And my history with Christianity had been very mixed. Uh, my nuclear family, we did not go to church. Uh, my parents were very open with, I remember having a talk when we were young that they supported the church and that kind of thing, but we as a family didn't go. And I remember going to Plasky Heights Methodist, some sort of like vacation Bible school type thing and really having this strong connection with Jesus. And I remember the song, he has the whole world in his hands and these other sorts of songs. and. And my grandparents went to a, a church of a very uh, sort of different persuasion. And, and being the only oldest child, I was always the one who went to church with them in my family because I felt like this sort of obligation, maybe as the oldest child, grandchild, but also had this, this really uh, deep interest in Jesus. So I had this slight dual thing, but some of the messages, the older I got, I didn't really makes sense to me, the sort of messages of this brand of Christianity. And when I was in New York City, I remember going and just sitting in St. John's the Divine. It was pretty close to Columbia and just sitting there. and It just felt like home to me for some reason. So I always had this sort of mixed feelings about the religion. I'd had this sort of negative experience going to church, but also had this other side of me that felt very drawn to Christianity. And I met Jay McDaniel. He was a professor at Hendricks in uh, religion. And he, I remember going up to, and, but this class was just a varieties of what we might call non-traditional approaches to Christianity. Uh, I remember there was a segment on 
African Christianity and anyhow, this book was one, the, one of the main books we read, uh, The Kingdom Within, the inner meaning of Jesus' sayings. And it really like, and I have to thank Libby, I'd kind of forgotten the connection of this book <laughs> to my own journey. And she mentioned this book in her, her talk here three or four weeks ago. And it really like, and I've been rereading it this week because it, it really reintegrated my inter interest. And reading through this book this week, I realized it was just, I really didn't understand it, but I was intrigued by it. I was like, yes, this, because it resonated with my experience that uh, the teachings of Jesus were very powerful and important and influential, something like that to me. And then Jay in particular, as a person, I remember going up to him after class one day and kind of challenging him. Christians believe this, but you know, I believe that I sort of was at the mindset at that age, I was 23 or something that uh, I was kind of headstrong a little bit, that there was this true Christianity, but Christians didn't really understand the true Christianity <laughs> kind of thing. And he's like, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I was like, wow. You know? And then I was kind of talking about music. I'd been uh, seeing a lot of concerts in those years and having some experiences I felt were kind of spiritual, honestly. And I remember telling him that and he's like, yeah, I agree, I agree. I went to Woodstock and I was just like, wow, this guy's cool. And uh, it really opened my eyes. And I, I remember Peggy Hayes coming from, uh, she was Episcopal, I think she was a rector in Conway. And she was talking about vegetarianism and I'd never heard of vegetarianism, I don't think. So it was just really eye-opening to me that Christianity was much broader than I had felt it was just in my basically one experience growing up with my grandparents church primarily and i don't know where to and then the next semester he taught jay i was sort of a jay disciple at that point i was a philosophy major and the physics people finally told me that i needed to just stay in the philosophy department because <laughs> i could do all the math and stuff but i didn't like the engineering part and i was always asking these questions about the meaning of life and quantum theory and stuff. They're like, just stay over there in philosophy. <laughs> so uh, I took every class of J's I could take. And the next semester he taught uh, Buddhism. And there's certain teachings of the Buddha that there's something called the Four Noble Truths. Like basically life is not, it's not life is suffering, but suffering is basically part of our conditioned life. And these other three other troops through following from that. And I just had this sense of when I, in that class that somebody's like telling me the truth. It just felt like, like honest. And he had a teacher, Roshi Fukushima, who's from Japan, Japanese Zen Buddhism, particular type of Buddhism. And they have this idea of enlightenment in Buddhism. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's the answer I've been searching for. <laughs> enlightenment you know I want that you know that's the answer and I started meditating and that was the first time I remember we were on the uh, Hendrix chapel and Jay took the class there and taught us to meditate in preparation for Roshi. Roshi Fukushima would come to visit him one or two weeks a year I think for many years and you sit in a particular way and it's a very type of meditation where you sit very motionless and basically observe your breathing in a sense. And I found it intriguing. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna be enlightened. So I uh, would drive to Memphis, my, one of my philosophy teachers said, there's this great bookstore there. So I'd drive over there and come home with books on philosophy and, and Buddhism. I was like, all right, I'm gonna do this. I was 23, I was like, I figured you know, five or six years I'll be enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> And so it went from there. I had this, I've had uh, this strong interest in meditation since that day, really. And it's been a up and down struggle. And it's incredibly hard, this type of meditation. It's like very simple, the instructions, but it's incredibly hard to do. And I remember, I mean, I'd meditated like twice or whatever. And so I signed up for this retreat with Roshi Fukushima. And Zen Buddhism is very, structured and disciplined and you have to sit in a particular position and it would be like 45 minutes motionless sitting and then these walking meditations and 45 minutes of motion 
and I found myself unable to do it. Excruciating pain and in my mind. And I had this idea that to meditate, you had to like get in this state of no thought and you could read the book. And so my first 10 years of meditation were basically going to retreats and then beating myself up a lot, trying it at home over and over again and reading more books because it's very difficult to me in that time in my life. And I'm not sure where I'm going. Is that? An, yeah, I think. that's um, that, that's a that's a great way into the conversation. And I, I wonder with your spending those 10 years of frustration and did you achieve enlightenment then after those 10 years or, or did you, or, in a sense, this constant feeling that I wasn't good enough or I couldn't do it at the same time, this feeling of who go between this, this is really hard. I can't do this. My mind is crazy. What have you? with little moments of inspiration as well and reading books and like, yeah, this is, so it's like, I really tried to get away from it. It always called me back. And then I met, and then I started reading books on Tibetan Buddhism. Remember the first book I bought was at this bookstore in Memphis, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I was like, that's what I want. I mean, I just, it was like this feeling and I just started reading and reading and it's, Tibetan Buddhism is very, fast it's maybe like the history of the catholic tradition or something it's just it's amazingly vast but i was so intrigued and i was reading books and trying to meditate i mean i was meditating but in my mind i felt like i was trying and then i was like there's so many types of meditation in tibetan buddhism and i was like i was just kind of lost in this swamp of different approaches to meditation as well as uh just strong interest as well and that's basically, I've been doing that for 30 years and gradually found like the types of meditation in the path that started to feel more at home. And then I started meeting personal mentors and teachers and, and that really was necessary for me or I, I probably would have driven myself crazy just reading and trying it on my own. I'm, I'm curious with the, what was it about Tibetan um, practice that or the, or the tradition of Tibetan Buddhism that resonated with you more than just Zen or, um, and, and if you wouldn't mind saying a word, like, I mean, from what I under, there's, there are multiple, just like Christianity, there are multiple Buddhisms, right? So. Yes, In the modern world, the two primary traditions are typically called Theravada Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. And I'm, it's very broad and complex, but basically the Theravada, there's just different branches of Buddhism and they're very different in terms of, there's underlying, you might say doc, doctrinal differences as well as externally, they're very different. Um, the more Theravada approaches are very, that you often um, orange robes and it's very austere. And Tibetan Buddhism is very colorful. It's part of what would be called the Mahayana tradition, Zen as well as Mahayana. Um, how should I explain those in a nutshell? Buddhists believe in enlightenment and part of enlightenment is releasing ourselves from samsara, which is the world of suffering and, and going to nirvana, which is sort of maybe heaven or I'm just making a loose analogy here. And Mahayana Buddhism, believes that you shouldn't achieve nirvana until everyone has achieved nirvana. So this is the idea of bodhisattva of you can get to a point where you could achieve nirvana, but you make a conscious intention and choice to remain in the world of samsara until everyone has been liberated. So I was just intrigued by that. It really, and I really think this comes from the teachings of Jesus to me, this, this idea of compassion it's kind of like I have no right to become enlightened unless everyone else has. And in Tibetan Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about two wings of sort of 
development. One would be wisdom and the other would be compassion. And that compassion, the Dalai Lama's compassion, compassion, compassion over and over again. And that really drew me primarily, I think, to the Tibetan movement. And then they also are very uh, kind of elitist in their philosophy. So that drew my five in the Enneagram. I was like, yeah, these people kind of know more than other people. And I'm not saying they do, but in my mind, I think I felt like, all right, I've looked around and this, these are like the, the smartest. So I'm going to follow these people maybe. And they use their mind. There's, there's a type of meditation called analytical meditation. And that sounded really wonderful to me. I was like, yeah, I can actually use my thinking mind. I don't have to get in this no thinking state, which now my view has changed about that. But at that time, I felt like my thoughts were somehow the problem. And Tibetan Buddhism, you actually use your thinking process in the meditations. And uh, so I read a lot of books. And then I started meeting Tibetan teachers. And then I met Geshe Thupten Dorji in Fayetteville. And he really like synthesized a lot of different, different trajectories in my mind and made it all made sense to me perhaps. And it was really Tibetan Buddhism that got me back into Christianity in a sense, along with Jay. Well, I, I, I'd love for you to, uh, I want to return to uh, your meeting in Fayetteville with uh, the, you all have to pronounce the name, the, the teacher, uh, because that was an introduction that led you into your work around compassion. And yes. Life. Yes. So I want to return to that, but, but but I also wanted to ask on how the Christianity came became integrated with that. Well, I struggled with that for many years. I mean, up until recently, honestly. I always I always felt that both were compatible to me. They they both they both make sense in my mind. And, and again, it probably goes back to Jay because he would call himself, what did he call himself? A Buddhist oriented Christian or something like that. <laughs> and so he was from the get go, he was, he was really involved in this sort of Buddhist Christian dialogue. And so I, I always held in my mind that these two were very compatible. And I think that's what probably drew me to Tibetan Buddhism, this compassion piece. I was like, that's, that's the commonality perhaps. And there was a, a professor, uh, I think he's a professor, Jesuit-oriented person in Dallas named Ruben Abito, who teaches Zen Buddhism and he's also a Christian. So I was always drawn to like this sort of dual approach. I'm not sure, what was your question? I'm sorry. Well, just how, how this thing became integrated for you. Yeah, and then I started studying Tibetan Buddhism and I think the pinnacle of Tibetan Buddha's practice, what they're experiencing to me is the same as God, basically. That's in a nutshell. They have this, try not to use technical terms. They have these sort of levels of reality, perhaps you might say, and the ultimate is called Dharmakaya. And it's, it's very similar to me to God, my understanding of God. So I always saw a connection there intellectually reading and I felt like, what, am I weird? Or am I a sinner? If I'm a Christian, I'm studying this. And then, you know, Buddhists can be very exclusive too. So it had this sort of internal struggle, I think, just cannot be interested in both of these. And it was honest, it's honestly only in the past five or eight years, I think I've really made peace with that in a sense of, they both make sense to me. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm curious um, in that intersection because it seems to me that more than any other religious tradition, Buddhism and Christianity seem to have a more interesting dialogue. Um, or, or you have people like Thomas Burton, who very much was drawing on Zen and, um, and his interactions with Thich Nhat Hanh, who you know, recently um, died. And, and then um, my liturgy professor, I think considered himself a, a Buddhist or oriented <laughs> Christian as well. Uh, so, so there, it's not an uncommon. Uh, right. So, what do, what do you think it is about Buddhism in particular, as opposed to like, you know, Hinduism or other major faith traditions that that 
yeah. collapse or that's a good question it could be just a cultural issue buddhism really hit here in the 60s pretty hard and so it, it was around but then also historically sort of my own sort of fiveness i've been reading a lot about the uh syriac syriac tradition of christianity and there was so much dialogue going on in that part of the world that what was the question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> Just how, how did those, uh, yeah. what, what, why do you think Buddhism in particular seems to be more appealing? Um, I think this is just my, to me, there's this idea in Buddhism of Buddha nature. The idea is that, I think Buddhism is represented sometime with this idea of no self and uh, it's, it's perceived as being atheistic and these sorts of things, which it's not. Uh, the Buddha said, when he asked about whether God exists or not, he said something to the effect of, I can't say whether it does or it's true or not true. It, in a sense, it was like beyond words to, to speak of it. And, and the idea of Buddha nature is that that's sort of who we are and we all have it. And this is like a thumbnail version. It's more complicated, but it's like the essence of reality. And it's also the essence of who we are. And that's my understanding of Christianity in a sense. That's where like the inner meaning of Jesus is saying, according to John Sanford, I think that that was the nugget that hit me. And, and then I, when we meditate, it's not about focus. It's not about relaxation. Ultimately, it's about sort of knowing who we are. And from the Buddhist perspective, they would say that's Buddha nature. From the Christian perspective, I would say something like that's the kingdom of God or something like that. One way of, not that that's the way, but among other ways of experiencing that, it would be an internal sort of experience. And there's this tradition in uh, Syria, which was the Eastern church, which was largely obliterated with all the invasions of the 12th through 14th century, et cetera. Uh, sometimes called the Nestorian tradition. They, they have this idea of um, this metaphor that's often used of pearl diving for pearls. And that that's sort of a metaphor for the spiritual the spiritual process. And the idea is that when we discover our heart, so to speak, we're really discovering God, Christ, the Trinity, and these sorts of things. And to me, that and Buddha nature really and this sort of internal place is a place of Buddhists would say wisdom and compassion. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> and when I read uh, the New Testament, well, there's a lot of wisdom and compassion. To me, they're very consistent coming from different sort of perspectives. And the two commandments, uh, you know, love God with all of your heart and love others as yourself, as yourself to me love others as yourself is as short of a definition of compassion as you can get. It's just like, that's it. And so I see Jesus as the ultimate embodiment of compassion, perhaps, and which some Buddhists I know would say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> there's a thing in Buddhism called Tonglen, and there's a Buddhist author recently who said, you know, Jesus was the ultimate embodiment of Tonglen. Tonglen is the ability to take on the suffering of others and just give out complete love. So to me, like Jesus on the cross is an ultimate embodiment of that. I wonder, um, I'd love to hear more about compassion and that, uh, and, and maybe, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about this uh, Christian idea that sounds like it has some resonances in Buddhism of, of kenosis. Yes. Um, uh, it comes from Philippians 2, um, but the idea that Christ emptied yes. himself um, in order to, to be among us, to, yes. uh, to be with us. And so, so I'd love for you to talk about that and its intersection with your teaching of, 
of compassion and uh but there may be others here who have been through dense compassion course uh, i i was privileged to be able to go through that with a group of clergy on zoom or um i guess it was the first summer of the pandemic um mm -hmm. and um so it was a nice kind of gathering of folks from across the country who, who were all going through this, this course together a good time to learn compassion um, so just open it up there yeah the experience of like what compassion is and teaching compassion uh, in the buddhist tradition like the classical text, there's this like sort of thing you're supposed to do if you write a text that you give homage to this, homage to that, homage to all your teachers, homage to the Buddha, homage, homage, homage. Like if you read the old text, and there was a one seminal text in the eighth century, anyhow, this is by this person named Chandrakirti, and his homage was homage to compassion. <laughs> compassion is necessary at the beginning, compassion is necessary at the middle, compassion is necessary at the end. I'm not sure why I just said that, but I remember reading that and the Dalai Lama talking about that. So that I was just like, I've got to have that. Like, it just made like sense to me. Like these people are onto something. And there's this whole amazing tradition in Tibetan Buddhism primarily that they got from the Indian tradition, which was largely wiped out with the Muslim invasions, et cetera, of compassion cultivation training. That's what we call it now. This whole extensive methodology of how to cultivate compassion. And I was just fascinated by that. One, because it, it made sense, like this is who I want to be. And two, because I felt like, in a sense, that was something missing for me. And my experiences with religion was practical methods of how the heck do you do this? And it's very amazingly detailed. And to me, when I read these like texts from the 11th century, they feel like to me, they're written for modern people. So I'm really, I was just amazed by that. But I would try to do them on my own and it's very difficult. Like there's one, the classic way is called the seven step. There's two like branches and the classic ways they call seven step compassion cultivation method or something. You start with equanimity, which is basically the ability to see everybody is in a sense equal. Like we're all, I might say we're all children of God or we're all the same <laughs> ultimately. And then there's these seven processes and then, but there's all these belief systems built into the processes like reincarnation. It was sort of taken as a truth in that tradition. And so the first meditation after seeing everybody is, is in a sense, we're all in the same boat, so to speak. And the first step is to recognize that not only are we all in the same boat, but everybody has been your mother in a past life. And if you believe in reincarnation, that's just like, whoa, even this person who aggravates the heck of me has been my mother. And the mother in their tradition is very, like if you think of your mother, it's just like, even my teacher Geshe, when you, they speak of their mothers, it's like, oh, and the Dalai Lama speaks of his mother. And some of us in the West don't necessarily have that connection with our mothers. Um, anyhow, and there's lots of belief systems that are, it's like, how do you crack this? And I was practicing these practices on my own. I was like, how do you do this? And if you don't have those belief systems. And I met Geshe Dorje and was going through these practices with him. And I was working in mental health that time with um, persons with schizophrenia, primarily persons with chronic mental illnesses. And I felt like these practices were really allowing me to show up. And uh, before that, my, when my grandparents were dying, I was doing Tonglin, which is a practice where you breathe into suffering and breathe out. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was getting it from books at that point. But I remember being able to sit there with them when they were dying like hours and days on it on end sometimes and i felt like everyone else was much more fidgety than myself i don't know i felt like it was allowing me to be present and i so i was really uh i was gaining like personal confidence and compassion but i had no framework for like what it meant because the teachings are kind of 
exotic from our cultural standpoint. And it was Geshe who kept saying, no, you don't need to believe this. You don't need to believe that. Just, it doesn't matter. And I was like, okay, I don't have to believe in reincarnation to do the practice. And then around that time, the secular approaches to meditation were just sort of taking off a little bit. John Kabat-Zinn developed this program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And I'd sort of heard about it. So I was aware that there was sort of secular versions of meditation. And then I discovered that there were a couple of compassion approaches to meditation being developed at Stanford and Emory. And this is kind of pre early internet days. And uh, anyhow, there was a program developed at Stanford University. The Dalai Lama was actually giving a speech there. They had, they had this big research institute on compassion. And on the spot, he, he donated a bunch of money to them and said, you have to use this money to educate people about compassion and get it out in the world, not just do research. And that's what spearheaded this program up called compassion cultivation training so they basically took this tibetan model that i'm speaking of parts of it it's not like the whole package secularized it bring in a lot of science there's a lot of neuroscience stuff on meditation and compassion meditation and others and so created this program where they took some of the practices and this sort of stepwise process and it's very logical in tibetan buddhism you start here you go 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 here and they, uh, and so I started teaching it and that really uh, accelerated, I guess, my, my own personal relationship with compassion and my understanding of it. And the second half of that answer would be like, what is compassion? And I don't see it as a feeling at all. We think of compassion very much, when I say we, I mean, just general tendencies perhaps of like, I feel bad for somebody. It has a sense of sympathy is part of it, but it has a sense of feeling bad. I mean, that's the word we use sometimes. And I think of it more as this, like a state of mind almost, or a way of, a way of showing up. That's how I kind of talk about it with my therapy clients now. Like compassion is not about feeling sorry for someone or taking in someone else's suffering. That's a tricky one. I could talk more about that, even though the tone and practice we are. Uh, in the emptying aspect, I'm just, I discovered Cynthia Bourgeau's work five or six years ago, and she talks about kenosis and the type of meditation of centering prayer she teaches is very much emptying, emptying. And when I encountered that, it was like the same as kind of the Buddhist meditations. It felt the same to me. And there's this idea of emptying, which is to me kind of what we're doing in compassion as well. It's emptying and just showing up to reality, not reality up there. But so it's a type of sort of mysticism that's not leaving, leaving anything behind. It's not leaving, it's entering the world. And that's to me what compassion is. It's mindfulness, which is sometimes described as being present, that's one way describing it so i think of compassion as the ability to be present to difficulty i like to say difficulty instead of suffering because suffering has such a negative connotation perhaps and the world is full of pain and the world is full of difficulty compassion allows us to show up and be there with it well i have a number of questions to go from there, but I, I want to make sure I don't dominate the, the question asking if there are others in the room who have questions at this point for Dens or online. Um, if anyone want to, yes. Uh, I had a young lady from Taiwan that worked for me for a number of years, and she was a Christian Buddhist, or uh -huh. Buddhist, whatever, however you describe her, and had grown up uh, her whole family was, and had grown up in day. Of course, she was had the Eastern or Asian uh, culture around her in that regard. But she said something because I asked her, I said, well, are, are they in conflict? Because I didn't know much about Buddhism when she first started working for me. She said, oh, no, no, not very. We are. We do not worship Buddha as a god. Buddha is a wise man, I'm paraphrasing. Buddha is a wise man that teaches us how to live a good life. But we don't 
worship him the way we worship God. And that really helped me kind of differentiate the, the two. Is that your understanding and your perspective? And I, I realize there's lots of different ways that those that Christianity and Buddhism can come together. I would say yes and no, just my own personal understanding. Uh, there's so many types of Buddhism that, like in the Mahayana branch, they sometimes speak of Buddha as one of, uh, there's eons of Buddhas, <laughs> and then ultimately there's like some sort of cosmic Buddha or something that's anyhow. But yes, yes and no. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't answer the question, but um, typically in Buddhism, they don't worship the Buddha. But they sort of worship. Well, there's different there's different approaches. Some have a very Jay Jay McDaniel sometimes says there's so many theistic types of Buddhism <laughs> as well. But uh, I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question. Maybe no, no. I was just but it makes sense to me that approach because in in traditional Buddhism, the Buddhist Buddha was seen as yeah a a human example of like what we can achieve, like the optimum sort of level we can achieve or something like that, but they don't worship him as a God or anything like that. It's a very different feel than uh, how Jesus is perceived in Christianity as like, like the mediator between God and us, perhaps. I'm trying to be very careful with theology and doctrines because you know I'm, my understanding is like this much. Yeah, thank you. And I'm not sure I answered your question, but thank you. Yes, Foster, hi. Um, I did. Um, I was wondering if there's a maybe a text or something, not, not anything from the 11th century, and not anything <laughs> terribly exotic, but something like mindfulness for dummies that you would that you would suggest if someone wanted to be kind of introduced to these things. Maybe we don't have exactly 30 years. But we want to kind of, you know, get into it. What would you say? Oh, there's so many books out there. That's a tough question. I, I would say um, I'm a big fan of Sharon Salzberg, S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G. Um, any of her books. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Tara Brock called Radical Acceptance. Would you be interested in more of a theoretical level or just like nuts and bolts, like how to meditate kind of thing? I would like both, maybe some nuts and bolts, but let's see, give me the name of the last book you said again. Salzberg, uh, the two persons I'm thinking of now, Sharon Salzberg, S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G, and Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H. And they both also have pretty extensive websites and a lot of resources there as well. That would, those, both of those places would be good to dig in as entered. Not introduct they're both very deep, but also introductory level. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I so, just want to say you're also forgetting another very important book. Oh my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my book actually gives a pretty good, I think, uh, orientation to meditation mindfulness as well as compassion practices as well as there's a thing in buddhism called the four foundations of mindfulness which you mindfulness of the body mindfulness of the mind which is basically our thoughts and emotions mindfulness of awareness which is kind of who we are underneath the thoughts of emotions and mindfulness of they have words for it. it's more like mindfulness of experience or something like that. So I do sort of uh, baby versions of that or something like that. But it's not meant for Buddhists. And give us the title of the, the book. Pursuing Purpose. I don't remember the subtitle. Something about mean, meaning and meditation or something. But I, a guide to finding meaning through meditation. Right. Available wherever books are sold, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Words, uh, Wordsworth had them. I'm not sure if they still have them in stock, but they can order them through there. I mean, you can obviously get it through Amazon. Mm -hmm. 
you can either purchase it or order it through Wordsworth as well. It's always good to have a spouse to, to plug your yeah. yeah. I was like, man, what is, I'm like, what is she going to ask? She's about to put me on the spot. Like, you're compassionate. You're not compassionate. My main mentor, uh, Margaret Cullen in Compassion Cultivation, would sometimes be teaching us and would say, well, yeah. My 14-year-old or 16-year-old keeps me honest because she rolls my, her eyes at me and says, oh, and you're a compassion teacher? <laughs> so I, was, I was expecting that kind of thing. Do you have a question? You talked a lot about your, uh, in early years, your search for something that was meaningful to you. Uh-huh. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about how you, or if there's any specific things that, that you found helped you. I mean, my question sort of is, you were looking for something that was meaningful to you, so there were things that must have incorporated into your practice, if that makes sense. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if there's anything in particular or any things in particular that you, in your belief system, you've already mentioned Christianity, of course, but that you that you adapted into what you finally decided was the right way to go or the right way to start. Uh, as, for me, it sounds like a, you're always starting a little bit uh, in the practice and how you dealt with maybe unsuccessful experiences during the learning period. I mean, what, what kept you going besides just your own drive? Was there anything uh, that you questioned or may not be? But, well, Jay McDaniel, something that really stuck, I mean, he obviously had a big influence because I'm remembering things he said 30 years ago. He I took classes with him on uh, process-oriented perspectives to God and Christianity. And I remember him one time saying there's sort of three main sort of assumptions about what God is. God is all-powerful. God is all-good and God is all-knowing. And he basically said something like, well, I believe two of the three, we in process, but we, we believe God is all good and all knowing, but not necessarily all powerful. And he spoke of God as being this sort of lure, sort of something that draws us. So I always, looking back on my life, Libby talked about having this sort of identity crisis when her ch children were grown and she went to Washington, D.C. And looking back on my life, I, I can see lots of these, I'm on one path and then everything just sort of falls apart. And in the moment, it often looks like failure. But looking back, I see these failures as sort of <coughs> something drawing me forward, perhaps. So there was always part of me that just kept being drawn toward meditation, towards spirituality. And I really would try to get away from it, I think. And, and then sometimes this synchronous thing, Carl Jung talked about synchronicity. Sometimes things just happen in the world that to me only makes sense that there's God. Like I was walking through the student union in Fayetteville and I was starting my PhD. And I was at a time in my life where I'd felt like I needed to be living in Paris or New York. I was just like, I, I, don't, I don't want to be in Arkansas. So I was having these sort of feelings like, I should, and I was walking through the, because at that time I really wanted a teacher. I really wanted to dig in deep. And I've been, I was like, I've been reading books for 15 years I need. And I was walking to the student union and there's this flyer on the wall saying, Geshe Thupton Georgie visiting teacher from Tibet. And it was like an undergraduate course and I was getting a PhD. And I somehow convinced them that I was like, had this fellowship they were paying for my Walton. And I somehow convinced them that if I took this course, it would help me with my PhD. And then there was a waiting list in the course. And then I got this email from Sidney Burris, who's a who's the person coordinating on this, like the night before the course began, saying there's a, there's a spot we would love to have you. And I didn't know him at all. So looking back to me, that's God somehow. And little things like that happen. Like I go back to that first talk with Dr. Falls Corbett 
And if she hadn't just said on the spot, you know, I think you should take this course with Jay. So looking back on my life, there's all these sort of little moments that in the, in the, at the time looked like, like, a, like I'm in these moments of indecision, but it feels like there's something else that's like pulling me forward, even though it doesn't always feel like that in the moment. So looking back, I feel like there's all these sort of events that happen that are larger than like personal choice or chance or circumstance. And there's been like a lot of those sorts of experiences. I'm not sure I answered your question. No, that's, that's great. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, I, I... one question that's been kind of forming for me in, in your, your answer there helped me articulate, I think um, a lot of your work, particularly with teaching compassion and, and, and generally a lot of what's available in terms of learning mindfulness and um, some of these Buddhist practices have been in a way made imminent or made like where it's, it, it's not religious per, per se. Um, you know, people learn mindfulness practices in school or workplace settings and things that are not um, particularly religious. So I wonder for you how, I mean, it sounds like for you, it's also been an, an opening onto transcendence. So what have you seen in terms of how that's taught and, 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 and providing an opening for transcendence for people that without maybe explicitly doing so. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting that the Dalai Lama would, you know, donate all of this money to, to this compassion program that's a, kind of a secular compassion program, but yet it doesn't seem, it seems like there's a trans, transcendent aspect of, of uh, Tibetan Buddhism as well. So uh, maybe I'm not articulating it well, but, but that transcendence and eminence and the, the dance between those two and, and, helping people understand these concepts. Like if you take a non-religious approach to meditation, how does transcendence emerge from that perhaps? Or? Yeah, yeah. Or um, how do you, you know, kind of provide the opening? Um, but and allow for the work of transcendence in that. Um, yeah. Well, in mindfulness meditation, the beginning way it's taught is typically as a tool to cultivate attention or focus. And in my own experience, I felt like I was trying too hard to be focused. And it was actually winding me up tighter and tighter, perhaps. And it's often taught as like two qualities, focus and non-judgmental awareness. And you're often using an object of meditation, for instance, your breath or your body or your breathing. But then there's a point where you're taught, and these are in secular programs now as well, that the type of attention is very important. And it's sort of a looser, gentler type of attention. And it's really awareness, not focus maybe. So just the practice of it in and of itself, you sort of start to be aware of your awareness, perhaps. And in the Syriac tradition, I think maybe perhaps all Christian meditative traditions, they, the Beatitudes, is that they're called in Matthew? Uh, the eighth one, I believe, is blessed are the pure at heart, for they know God. And that's a very strong, these, I've been reading like the Syriac meditation people and that's like really important passage to them. 
and I feel like focus and attention is up here and awareness is right here. And awareness feels transcendent or something like that. So I feel like in Buddhism, they would talk about our Buddha nature. Our minds are inherently pure or something like that. So it's not like we're achieving anything. We're experiencing what's already there. And I feel like in compassion cultivation, it's the same. We're cultivating and in a sense, we're also just allowing what's already there to open up and broaden and expand. So I feel like you can have no religious sort of orientation at all and still it's there. It's who we are, I believe. And so I feel like mindfulness practice can lead there because I feel like that's who we are, perhaps something like that. Didn't yeah. articulate that very eloquently. But... Yeah. Well, that, that's really helpful. And uh, um, yeah, because I, I, I know a number, I'm just curious in part because I, I know of more than one person who kind of entered with mindfulness practice and um, was not a religious believer of any kind and then ended up becoming a religious believer through kind of secular mindfulness practice. Um, and um, so, so I'm just kind of, I was just kind of curious on your, your experiences with that. And the, the idea would, is something like if you start recognizing your Buddhist might say your true nature starts to feel really good perhaps or i use a term coming home in my book it feels like oh this is what i've been searching for all the time all this reading all these studying i was going to do this career this career that career read this book it was like oh yeah and then compassion is the same it's like okay yeah people often report something like it just feels good it feels like it's it's natural, it's who I am. And I think these practices can, mindfulness is not really about following the breath, that's a tool. This is a sort of my thumbnail interpretation of, it's about discovering who it is that's following the breath. And then that's your awareness and your awareness is, has a very spiritual feel to it in my my experience is like, oh, okay, yeah, this is what they're talking about in the religions, perhaps. And it can lead to a certain, there's a lot of people I know who are very, very spiritual, but feel like they don't necessarily need religion or something like that. Or it can be like, oh, this is what the religions are talking about. So now I, I feel very comfortable or drawn to enter a religion and perhaps I, I, I wasn't as comfortable before. Okay. You know, Western Christianity, including the Episcopal Church, is very tough. We have a lot of words for a lot of things, and we're we're very uh, language heavy. Yes, I would say. Um, at the previous general convention, there was a crowdsourcing effort for the prayers of the people, and you know, in our prayer book, there are different kinds of prayers, petition, thanksgiving, uh -huh. and adoration of sort of the last one. They sent out the call for petitions. Beautiful petitions came flying in. Uh, they sent out the call for thanksgiving. The whole crowd had beautiful thanksgivings and offerings. When it came time for crowdsourcing a prayer for adoration, they didn't get much response because we were not really well equipped to uh, think about prayer or an experience of the divine beyond language. Right? We don't know how to put into words sitting in the presence of God or simply adoring God in the language of the prayer book uh, without the words starting. You know? I just found that exercise really fascinating. And I wonder, like, would you have advice for the for us as Episcopalians in particular, a very wordy group, you know, Based on the work that you've done, how can we move more deeply into even an ability to, to sit in 
in meditative adoration. You know, so like I feel like our our denomination is not well equipped for this kind of quieter work, perhaps more inward looking work. Just feeling an interesting tension. We do it better with music. I'm not sure if this gets at it, but I'm a big fan of the Jesus prayer. I sort of, Rob last week was talking about how he sort of, like, I just do this. I don't need anyone's permission or something. And I sort of play with practices myself. And I sort of have my own version of the Jesus prayer that's something like a, Jesus Christ, ultimate and body of compassion in human flesh, or ultimate, of various ways I say it. You know, have compassion on me, your beloved. And I got the beloved part from Logrishim at our retreat. It's not, to me, it's a way of using language because it's hard to just sit and then just empty. And it starts to feel like emptiness is, Buddhists would say emptiness is full too. And it starts to feel like to me, like use language as a tool for emptying. And then there's a sense of a presence of receiving something too. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. And it's hard just to sit. And I've learned that thoughts aren't the problem in meditation. It's the ability just to learn to sit and let the thoughts be there. So even saying a prayer and just pausing and not fighting the language, but using the language as a tool and just resting in it perhaps or something like that. Is that getting it anything that's helpful? Well, then our time has flown and we're, we're right up against an hour um, and have to get on to, to worship. But I appreciate so much your being with us today. And um, I would love in closing, we didn't get to your full stack of books here, um, but I've been thinking about resources um, that are available. I'd, I'd love for you just to, to kind of name some of what you, you've brought for us today. I'll also mention that Sandy Smith brought some, some texts that are, I think, in, from your Centering Prayer group. So um, have, I think, some resonance with some of what we've been talking about today and throughout the series. And they are available um, for who, whomever would like to, to take them uh, on, on the back table. So please take a look at those. and. Um, but, but then what, what, what are, these are more just for myself. I mean, these are all, I was just kind of going through my Christian books, books uh, Thomas Martin's Contemplative Prayer is I've been carrying this around for years. Uh, this is the book that just blew me away a few years ago. Cynthia Bourgeau's The Heart of Centering Prayer, Non-Dual Christianity in Theory and Practice. And this is, my journey is always evolving, but this book in particular, her perspective on centering prayer in particular, particular types of Tibetan Buddhist meditations are just so close. It just like was overwhelming to me. Uh, Marguerite Porete is a, a, a 13th century Beguine who has a particular approach. She was burned at the stake, but uh, <laughs> she, she has a particular approach to meditation that's really about I can't say all this in one minute. Uh, Jay McDaniel, Living from the Center. This is one of my favorite books, Spirituality in an Age of Consumerism. This is this book blew me away too. The Thirst of the Thirst of God, Contemplating God's Love with Three Women Mystics. This was I met this person at a conference, Wendy Farley, a meditation conference, and she that was one of probably eight years ago, and that was one of the meetings that really 
got me to dive more deeper into the Christian tradition of contemplative practice. I heard about this book from Sandy, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time uh, by Marcus J. Borg. And that book blew me away too, just in terms of, wow, really integrating more in my understanding of the compassion-oriented perspective of Jesus. This is the kingdom within the book we talked about at the beginning. And this is a book I've been reading a lot recently, The Wisdom of the Perlers, an anthology of Syriac Christian mysticism. And it's just fascinating to me. Uh, there's a per certain person named John the Venerable from the eighth century I've been reading. And it, just like I mentioned one of the Buddhist books earlier, I feel like he's writing like to me in the 20th century and it's from with the eighth century. Uh, so I know we're totally out of time. So. Thank you so much. Ben.